This morning, um, before we get to the sermon, I want to just spend, I want to spend some time praying about 9-11. It obviously, the 10th anniversary, there's a lot of different events going on all over the country. There are several here in St. Louis, but um, all of us have been touched in some way by that event. And today's reminder is a reminder for us to pray. And so I'd like to spend just a a few minutes in the service uh, praying specifically uh, about that uh, about that day and, and kind of everything that's all around that. So before we go to our, our teaching time in the Word, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning so grateful and so thankful for the, the blessings in our lives, which are too numerous to, to even mention. Uh, Father, we uh, in many ways are insulated from many of the struggles that uh, are in the rest of the world. Uh, but as we, as we think about 10 years ago this morning, and, and every one of us who's old enough remembers where we were and what we were doing and, and how we found out uh, as this tragic event unfolded before our very eyes. And Father, for many people, as, as news commentators uh, said that morning, the world will never be the same. Uh, and in many respects, it, it hasn't. Uh, there's a bit more of fear and anxiety and anxiousness. There is a uh, a heightened sense of, of needing to think about things like security and, uh, and what would you do in the event of another attack. Uh, Lord, we, we do live in, in a different world after 9-11. But Father, we don't live in a different world that is out of your control. Uh, we don't live in a, in a different world that is void of the presence of God and the redeeming work of Jesus. Lord, none of that has been shaken. Our, our hope and our faith is secure in Christ. And so as we come to you this morning, Lord, we, we don't come um, asking you to just bless our nation just to, to, so that we don't have any problems. Father, we ask that, that you would meet us at our point of need. Father, I think of people who lost loved ones on that day. I think of, of, of uh, Meg Smith and our own congregation who lost a brother, someone she, she never got to see again after that day, someone who, who doesn't get to... Uh, should I get to interact with anymore, Lord? The, the heartache and the pain is so real in so many people's lives. And so whether we actually were personally touched by that or just know someone who was or simply saw it on the nude, Lord, we pray for those folks whose, whose worlds were so shaken. We pray that your peace and your spirit would minister in profound ways in people's lives. Lord, maybe 10 years uh, now, you know, in, into the... Uh, this deal, there's somebody who for the first time is going to think about a relationship with you because of the sorrow they're feeling once again over the the events of that day. Lord, you use human tragedy for salvation and for grace and for mercy. And we don't understand how all of that works, Lord, but we pray that today, especially in many, many lives, your spirit would be at work. And for those who know you, that, that your peace would be their comfort and their hope. And for those who don't, Lord, that you would, you would speak your gracious mercy into their lives. Father, we pray for our enemies. Uh, Lord, we're not inclined to pray for our enemies. In our own hearts, we want them captured. We want them punished. But obviously, we, we know uh, they did wrong, and, and we sit in judgment. And Lord, that's, that's not what you called us to be as disciples of Jesus. It's not that we don't discern between right and wrong. But Lord, you said, pray for your enemies. Love those who persecute you. So, Father, as disciples of Jesus, I pray that we would grow in that. I I need to grow in that, Lord. I I don't want to pray for my enemies. I pray that you would would break my heart to the point where I would see everyone in the way you see them. 
someone who needs a savior, a lost sinner. So, Father, for for those who would want to do us harm, we pray that, Lord Jesus, you would speak into their lives and that you would bring redemption. Father, we do pray for our government and for governments all over the world who are tasked with the serious responsibility of protecting the citizens of their countries. Father, I I pray for wisdom for national and state and, and world leaders. Father, I pray that we would discern between right and wrong, that we would seek for there to be uh, a just and stable society that, that honors your divine law of, of caring for everyone. Father, I pray that as, that as people, whether they're in the military or whether, whether they're in the civilian side of government, Lord, that you would give them great wisdom and discernment, Lord, that your spirit would lead and that, that, that they would follow uh, your direction, and not only in their own lives, but, but in their responsibility as leaders. So, Father, this type of circumstances is so overwhelming and it's so beyond... Uh, us as individuals, but we know we can trust you. And we do that this morning. Again, praying for your gracious mercy to uh, flood over those who again today are grieving. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, we are back in Romans. Uh, We're in chapter 8. Uh, we're about a year and a half into a, a study that's going to last for probably about another year and a half, but we're making good progress. And this morning we're going to look uh, at Romans 8 verses, uh, verses 5 through 11, and we're going to look at uh, what I'm going to call a, a new way of thinking. And the, the title of the sermon is The Spirit is Life, but uh, where we're going to go with this is, is the radical transformation that can take place in a person's life through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So as I thought about this and I wrestled with this text, I thought there's really only one appropriate and accurate way to get a good picture of how, how radically a person can change when, when they hear a word of life. So watch the screen. So great, that's so great. Listen, I've been thinking, if you don't want me mixing with Creed no more, we'll make out some other kind of way, you know? There's one thing I want you to do for me. What? Come here. What? Win. Win. What are we waiting for? Take this!
lot of people don't know this. It's a pretty hidden fact that I was uh, Sylvester Sloan's stunt double in that movie back in 78. <laughs> they laughed in the first service, too. Um, anybody that's familiar with the Rocky movies, that was from, from Rocky, too, knows that, uh, that um, Rocky Balboa had lost his will to fight. Uh, his wife had said to him, I just don't want you to fight anymore. I think it's bad for you. It's going to hurt you. You're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to ruin our family. And so he was, he was in, literally enslaved in, in to that discouraging message. And he was training before this scene in the movie, but he's just going through the motions. And he just, his heart isn't in it. And it wasn't until she gave him permission. It wasn't until she said, I want you to do one thing. I want you to win, you know. And it makes everybody just kind of want to start doing one-handed push-ups. And, you know, and although if we had that music, you could make anything, you know, look really, really cool. But, but he was a new man. He, he had been empowered. He had been set free to, to, to be the fighter that, that he knew that he could be. I think a lot of times for Christians, we, we understand that God has set us free for salvation. We see that, that there is new life in that we've been redeemed, uh, that we have been saved, that, that when we uh, stand before God because of the mercy of Jesus, that we are going to be uh, ushered into heaven for all of eternity. But I think there's a piece of our faith that sometimes is missing. Sometimes we, we fail to see it, that it's, it's not just new life in terms of salvation, but there's new life in that God changes the way we think through the presence of his Holy Spirit. That, that the Spirit of Christ, as we're going to see in these verses in Romans this morning, actually indwells and empowers disciples to follow Jesus, to live a new way of life, so to speak. So if you're here this morning as a disciple of Jesus, as a believer uh, in Christ, that by faith you're saved by his, his death on the cross and his resurrection, then you're a new person, as Paul points out so clearly in Romans. It's not by your efforts, but it, rather it's by the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. And what has happened is that uh, the Spirit of Jesus is given to followers of Jesus in order that we might become a new creation, in order that we might leave the old behind and we might live in the truth and the power of the Spirit of God's presence in our lives. But I think this is, I'll just say that that at times I think the the body of Christ misses that. And so it's vital that we understand uh, and embrace that truth. And so the way we're going to look at it this morning in this passage is the way Paul breaks it up. He shows us kind of the old way of thinking, which is called the flesh. So when you see that either in your own Bibles or you see it on the screen, kind of the old person, the the before I knew Jesus person is the flesh, and then the person who is in Christ is a new way of thinking. So we're going to look at it in those terms. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. You can follow along on the screen or or in your own Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. Hear the word of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray for uh, illumination. We pray for the light to come on. Father, we pray that as we seek now to worship you with our minds and our intellect, that you would do your special work in our, in our thoughts. Father, I can't do justice to this passage. I can't, it doesn't matter what I can or can't do. My words are irrelevant. It is only the living, active, powerful word of God that transforms hearts and lives. Uh, that, that word that Adrian spoke to Rocky, when, Lord, the word you speak to us is life. And we need to understand all of those implications. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Please forgive me for my sins. Please don't let me stand in the way of someone hearing your truth and applying it to their lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. The old way of thinking according to the flesh, new way of thinking according to the spirit. Let's tackle the the negative first and then we'll come to the positive. What's the old way of thinking? How did we think before we came to know Christ as Savior? I'm going to give you uh, three ways that I think Paul points this out in this passage. The first one I'm going to call deadly thinking because Paul says in Romans 8 verse 6, for to set my mind, to set the mind on the flesh is death. What does Paul mean by by setting the mind on the flesh? I think if you want to just kind of consolidate it, you want to keep it it simple and direct, it's this. It's reasoning, it's thinking, it's setting priorities, uh, approaching my life in a way that leaves God out of the equation. It's reasoning absent God. That's what it means to set my mind on the flesh. Now, a lot of folks would assume that if you set your mind on the flesh and you, and you kind of leave God out of the picture, that the, the net result of that, where you end up, is in a terrible state where you're, you're some kind of hardened criminal uh, or, or you have some kind of you know, Hitler personality where you're, you know, you're just out to destroy the world and that you become the worst of the worst. You know, to, to set the mind on the flesh means that you just are an evil, terrible, awful person. And I believe that that's an inaccurate way to look at this passage. I know lots of people that have no use for Jesus that are actually very moral people. And and I believe that more often than not, where leaving God out of the equation actually on the surface can make you look like a better person, can actually make you act in a way that where you're a little more concerned about how you come off because you want to appear that you are doing well, and actually you have a desire and a longing to be a moral person. Rejecting God doesn't mean you go to the most evil place you can go. It simply means that you are going to do it in your own terms. So what does that look like in a person's life if, if, if I reject God, but I do have this sense of I, I want to be a decent citizen, so to speak? How does that look? Well, one of the things I think that results from that is I, I come to the conclusion I, I can be good enough on my own. I, you know, I can give money to charity. I can be a good next-door neighbor. I can be a productive employee. I don't need God to do all those things. And the mindset becomes, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of business on my own. A second way of looking at this is, you know, I can do enough good things that if there is a God, uh, you know, I can, I can kind of get the scales balanced in the right direction. So if there is a heaven, I'll get there. 
I can do enough good things on my own to deserve eternal life if that's actually what happens after death. You see, we, we don't lose the idea of doing right and wrong. We don't lose the idea of morality, but rather we take God out of the equation and we define it for ourselves. A third result is you might, you might say, you know, if I have a picture of God, my picture of God is certainly that he's a God of love, and he isn't going to judge me if I try hard enough. If I, if I do enough of the right things, he's got to be a reasonable guy, right? I mean, I mean come on. I'm, I'm doing pretty well here. I'm trying to do the right things. And yet all of that reasoning is absent God. Because I'm defining God. I'm defining how I'm going to live. I'm living according to the flesh. I might be even saying the right things. I might be saying even Christian kind of things, so to speak. But I am, I am focusing my life on my will, on doing it my way. And Paul says the net result of that ultimately is death. It's a deadly way of thinking. Why? Because God has said to us, you know, I come up with this idea, I'm good enough on my own, and yet God has said very clearly in his word in Romans chapter 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. We're all in desperate need of a Savior. I could do enough things to earn eternal life. Paul, uh, again in Romans 3, God says to us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't work hard enough to earn it. God is love. He won't judge anyone. If you go to Romans chapter 2, Paul states very clearly, don't misunderstand the grace and the mercy and the patience and the forbearance of God. It's so that you'll come to him for salvation. Don't think that God is ignoring your sin. He's not ignoring it. And if you don't put your faith in Christ, you will have to pay the penalty that Jesus paid for you on the cross. But because you won't accept it, the penalty still needs to be paid. And God is righteous and, and, and correct and perfectly holy when he judges us. That's why this way of thinking, though it may seem right to us, is a fatal flaw and it leads to death. Um, going back a few years, this is, is, is uh, not a, a well-known um, airline crash, although it was at the time. Back in August of 97, a South Korean airline uh, that was carrying 250-some-odd people with the crew and, and passengers crashed uh, on, the, on the approach into the Guam International Airport. And after they, uh, after they had you know, done the investigation and they had studied everything and they had collected the black box and listened to all of that, and the report came out on why this airline crashed, uh, what came out was that uh, the pilot really ultimately had no idea where he was. He, he had, he, his, his, uh, some of his instruments weren't working. Some of the instruments in the tower weren't working. And he was very confident he was right, you know, coming in over the runway and it was a rainy night. And so it ended up being pilot air. But as they listened to the recording, one of the other things that came out was that in South Korean culture, anyone who's subordinate does not speak directly to a superior. You don't point out their mistakes. You, you offer suggestions, but you do so respectfully, and then you're quiet. And as they listened to the black box, what they said was the first officer on that flight is saying as politely as he possibly can, and with all the respect he possibly can, we're in the wrong place. We're not over the runway. But because this culture did not allow for, you know, in the United States, if you're driving the car and you're going to drive it off the road and I'm the co-pilot, I'm grabbing the steering wheel. I don't care if you're the president of the United States, right? You know, we respect authority to a certain degree, but not at risk of life and limb. But in this culture, he said what he said, what he thought was acceptable, and then he was quiet. And the result was devastating. And in so many ways, we are thinking in the same way. We're over the runway. We're okay. 
when God is saying, child, look and listen and pay attention, you're not where you think you are. And it's a deadly way to think. The second way in which the, this old way of thinking uh, is in uh, our lives is what I'm going to call oppositional thinking in verse uh, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. You know, you kind of get this idea of, uh, of putting your hands on your hips and saying, you know, God, you can't tell me what to do. Uh, maybe you've had that experience as a child. You know, you tried that on mom and dad. You can't tell me what to do. Now, if your child's 28 years old, you should probably listen to that. But if they're four, there might be a, a different response. But you get the sense of, you know, I'm in charge, you are not. And that's kind of where Paul is going here. Uh, I'm the one who's, who's calling the shots. And so, God, if you try to, to tell me what to do, if you kind of interject into my life, I may be polite, but I'm going to hold you to arm's distance. I'm not going to engage with you. And there's a sense of skepticism. There's a sense of, you know, I'm not buying, you know, this whole Jesus thing. Uh, you know, I don't think I need that for salvation. There's also kind of a set of presuppositions. I just don't think that that's who God is. And so we are oppositional. Uh, I, I don't want God as defined in Scripture, and I'm not going to budge regardless of what you tell me. And, and, and we see God as a foe so to speak. I was watching a, a special the other night on TV uh, about, this, uh, about this group that was investigating the, the JFK uh, assassination, and they were asking the question, you know, the Warren Commission came out with all his findings, and, and everybody's suspicious about a conspiracy and who really killed the president and all of that. And they were just trying to figure out if Lee Harvey Oswald could do what the Warren Commission said he did. So the first thing was, could he shoot accurately three shots in eight seconds? And they showed that with that exact same you know, type of rifle, that that could be done. Then they said, okay, well, could he have gotten from the sixth floor of the book depository to the second floor to that lunchroom, you know, in a, in, a, in a manner that he wasn't, you know, running down the halls and calling attention to himself before the police officer stuck his head in and saw him sitting there. And they showed that he could very easily have gotten to that lunchroom simply by walking down the stairs at a very normal pace. Then the last thing they looked at was, okay, could he have gotten to, over to his home and then walked the, the, about the, the mile, 1.2 miles to where Officer Tibbet was shot and killed because he was... He was con- accused of that as well. And they showed very clearly that he could easily cover that distance in that amount of time. But at the end of this whole thing, they say, now we know that the conspiracy theorists aren't going to listen to one word we've said. They're they're just going to ignore this data. And in a sense, when you have a presupposition, you don't want to look at the data because it might actually attack your presupposition. If you're skeptic that somebody else, you know, the CIA had to have killed the president, then it doesn't matter what these folks said. If God doesn't love me the way I want him to love me or I don't want to have anything to do with God and that's my presupposition, I don't know that my oppositional thinking is going to be changed simply because someone argues from a different position. The old way of thinking is deadly. It's oppositional. And it's also, according to verse 8, it is godless. Those who are in the flesh, the old way of thinking, cannot please God. What Paul is saying here is that they cannot please God because they really have no interest and pleasing a God with whom, uh, or, or of whom they've disregarded. They have, they have no need for this God, so why would I bother trying to, to live my life in a way that shows an intimate friendship between the two of us? Uh, I have a really good friend named Scott Kemper, and a lot of you probably know uh, Scotty. He's a great guy, uh, and he uh, owns, he's one of the owners of the Llewellyn's Pubs and Restaurants uh, all around St. Louis. But Scott has one fatal flaw in his life, and that is he's a Webster guy. Born and raised, played football over there, wears the orange and black. And, and Scott's in my Wednesday morning Bible study, uh, and he has been for, for many years. But, but come that week of Thanksgiving, 
I got no use for Scott Kemper. <laughs> don't want to see him. Don't want to talk to him. Especially if we lose, then the whole next week, I don't want to see him come back. You know, I kind of, oh, we canceled Bible study. I tell the Kirkwood guys to come over. But, uh, <laughs> but I have a Scottless way of thinking in that, that short window. I, I don't want anything to do with him because he's got the orange and black, right? Now, that's a goofy example, but there are many of us who live our lives saying, I, I don't want God in the equation. I have, no, I have no need for him. I have no interest in him. What we need to understand this morning, those of us who consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, and that we would say this doesn't define us. Friends, we're saved by grace. And, and let's not go, well, I would never be like that because I love Jesus. Because what Paul is going to show us is this new way of thinking and this different life is not because we're smarter, not, not because, you know, we, we went to the right schools or, or we got the right instructions when we were little kids, but rather it's by God's grace. It's by God's redemptive power that God is changing the way we think. God receives the glory and the praise for this, and it should challenge us to look at these next few verses in a way that gives praise and glory to God and brings a gentleness to our heart as we interact with those around us. So what is the new way of thinking? If that's the old way of thinking that is deadly and oppositional and godless, what's the new way? Well, the first new way is back in verse 6 is what I'm going to call secured, secure thinking. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, what Paul is saying there is that when he uses that phrase life and peace, he's not saying that if you come to Jesus, you have no more problems. If you come to, you know, I just happened to, to look over here and see Katie. If you come to Jesus, it means you're never going to miss another three-pointer in your entire life. So, you know, go back to college and just know that you can close your eyes and throw them up and every one of them is going to go in. That's, that's not what the Christian faith means. It doesn't mean that, that life is now a bed of roses. Paul's not saying you have peace, that you have no problems. What Paul is saying is there is now a steadiness in all circumstances. Regardless of what's going on in your life, and the challenges that come our way, and the trials that are at times, we we seem sometimes almost overwhelmed by them, we need to remember that we're not alone because the Spirit speaks to me the assurance of God in every set of circumstances. So whether I am in great need or whether I am at a moment of ease in my life, my trust is in God and my thinking is secure, not because I figured it all out, but because the presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus is abiding within me and he's speaking his truth into my life. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that is beyond your comprehension. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who's, who's struggling mightily? They've had you know, a terrible report from the doctor or, or, or just some incredible difficulty, and they say, I can't understand it. I don't know why, but I feel a sense of peace. It's not because they have transcended to some state that you want to get to. It's because the Spirit of God, in some inexplicable way, has put their heart at rest, even in the midst of the storm. My, my favorite hero in all of church history is a guy named Polycarp, who was Bishop of Smyrna. And I've, talked, I've used him as an example before, and I'm going to use him again. And let me just say, if you have a hero in the Christian faith, make sure you have a dead hero, okay? Because they can't come back and mess it up, all right? Get, get, get somebody that's been gone a while. And my hero's been gone uh, for over 17, probably just about over 1,800 years now. Um, so I'm, I'm good with that. But Polycarp is, is, is brought in before the governor because he won't swear allegiance to Caesar. 
And, and the governor's like, I'm going to throw you to the wild beasts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn you at the stake. And so Polycarp's circumstances, there, there's no peace, so to speak, in Polycarp's life. He, he's up against the wall, and, and he's got nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And, and so the, 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 the governor is urging him. He doesn't want to kill him. He really wants to set him free. He's like, if you'll just uh, swear to Caesar, I'll, I'll set you free. And, and Polycarp responds. He says, 86 years I've served him. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And, and so the governor comes back at him again. He says, you know, just promise to Caesar. You know, just, 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 you know, don't even mean it, just say it. And Polycarp says, since you're vainly urgent that I should say, that I should swear fortune to Caesar, and you pretend not to know who or what I am, hear me now declare with boldness, I'm a Christian. So now they're getting, now they're actually bringing him to the stake and, and they're going to, they're going to, uh, they're going to attach him to the stake. And, uh, and they're going to uh, take nails and put them in his hands and his feet so that he doesn't run away when they light the fire. And Polycarp says this. He goes, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire, he will also enable me, without you securing me by nails, to remain without moving in the flames. And he dies in the flames. He, he gives his life for Christ. There's nothing peaceful about that scenario except the heart of Polycarp that is controlled and indwelled by the Spirit of God. And there's a security in his heart that that governor who was trying to get him to swear allegiance to Caesar could never possibly know. The Spirit of God gives us a secure thinking. The Spirit of God also gives us what I'm going to call a definitive thinking. In verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. Look at how Paul defines the spirit. I belong to God. I have life and peace through whom? Through Jesus. It's not the spirit of my ancestors. It's not the spirit of some would-be Messiah who's making false claims. It is completely but only the spirit of Jesus. That is the non-negotiable of our faith, friends. That is why it is a definitive statement. We cannot step off of the foundation of Jesus as Savior and Lord. What did Jesus say to the crowds in his day? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What did Peter say when he preached that sermon in Jerusalem? There's no other name besides Jesus given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to understand that the Spirit of God has a very definite way that he wants us to think. He wants us to see Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the new way of thinking is that there is one Savior, there is one Messiah, and he is Jesus. And we owe him our undying and complete allegiance and trust and hope. But if you're going to have a definitive way of thinking, you better also have a way of thinking that leads you to humility and to gentleness. And that's Paul's next point in verse 10. There is a humble and a confident way of thinking in this new life. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see the humility in this statement? 
if Christ is in you, even though your body is dead, what do you bring to the equation? I bring to the equation this, 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 this dead body. The spirit is life. Paul says there's no room for arrogance in the life of a believer. How, if I am dead and the spirit makes me alive, do I have room to boast or do you have room to boast? There's a, there's a humbleness, there's a gentleness about us because what we're saying is I didn't earn it. It's been given to me out of grace by God. But there's also a confidence. We are confident in God's righteousness. It's God's work of salvation. We've said this before. We'll say it again a dozen or more times before the series is over. God's righteousness is defined by his mercy and justice being satisfied. God is a just God. He is not going to ignore your sin. He's not going to ignore my sin. And so he put his justice on Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that God could therefore be perfectly merciful to you and to me. And my confidence is not in my ability to hold on to God. My confidence is not in my ability to never make another mistake and never sin again. My confidence through the Spirit of God is to be reminded that Jesus has paid the price and that I am confident in what God has done which allows me to continue to be incredibly humble if I will follow the Spirit while at the same time completely trusting in Jesus. And that's what missional means. We've talked a lot about this in in recent times, and Michael talked about just being missional here, just saying to folks, hey, I haven't met you before. You new to Green Tree? We're glad you're here. That's just being purposeful. It's looking out and saying, how can I share the love of Christ with someone? That mindset is humility, as well as confidence. And those two have to go together in our lives. I remember, like it was yesterday, and this is going back, Michael was talking about 1999 and 2002. It was somewhere in that time frame, and I had a friend who came to Green Tree for a while, and he was here for, for three or four Sundays in a row. He's still a friend today, but he, but he isn't at Green Tree. And, and he said to me out in the parking lot out here, he goes, Tom, I love Green Tree. I love everything you guys do. I love how you care about the school district. I love about how you, you know, you're trying to, to be in the community and really help people and care for people. Could you just get off the Jesus is the only way statement? I would come here if you would just, I don't care if you say Jesus is one of the ways, but could, could, but could you just, could you just kind of ease up on that? And, and you could do great things. We'd have so many people this church, it would just be amazing. And, and I said there was just a brokenness in my heart, and I said, I can't do it. Because what you see is not green tree. It's not people who are great people. What you see is the Spirit of God alive at Green Tree. And the only reason the Spirit of God is alive at Green Tree is because people have come to God through faith in Christ alone, and it's His Spirit. It's not us, it's Him. And our confidence is in Him. And you can put a gun to my head, and I still will say no, because Jesus is the reason that I can have confidence. I can do almost anything else, but you can't ask me to do that. Friends, we need to humbly and graciously understand that the Spirit of God is causing us to think in a way in which Jesus is Lord, and that allows us to minister by His grace and His mercy to others. There's one other observation on this new thinking, and it's what I'm going to call a hope-filled thinking, and that's not a typo. It's not that I should have said hopeful, but I said hope-filled, because I want to remind us where it comes from. It comes from the filling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I don't have hope because I'm just mentally stronger than other people and I just want everything to work out okay. I have hope because the Spirit of God within me is a spirit of hope. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. We have a new life, but it's not just for this life. We're going to have new life in our mortal bodies. We're, we're, we're going to, to dwell with Jesus face to face forever and ever. It's, what's to come is, is glorious beyond description. But for this day, the eternal spirit of God is dwelling within me. And he has made me alive forever. But he helps me understand in this moment, in this day, where even on a day where we celebrate, uh, celebrate is, is way the wrong word, where we, where we look back and we reflect on such a tragic event, we can put it into context. Not that we have all the answers. Not that we, not, not that we are some kind of prophet that proclaims exactly what, what God is doing, but rather that we have an eternal perspective. And we know that God can take tragic moments and he can turn them to his good. And a lot of your stories have to do with how you came to Christ in the midst of a tragedy, in the midst of a crisis. That was where God spoke most directly to you. And so the spirit of God is a spirit of hope because friends, this isn't all there is. This isn't the end of the story. And the spirit of God proclaims that loudly from the rooftops. It was a Hollywood deal, and so I know you got to kind of remember it was a Hollywood deal, but, but Adrian gives Rocky life with one word, when. And the gong sounds, and the music starts playing, and Rocky could do 750,000 push-ups with one hand, and, and you know, he's, off, he's off to the races. But friend, the Spirit of God has, has put one word in your heart if you're a disciple, and the word is Jesus. And because the spirit of Jesus dwells within you, there's a new way of thinking. And it's secure, and it's solid, and it's filled with hope, and it's humble, and it's compassionate, and it's gracious. The spirit gives us new life and a new way of thinking. Are we listening to his voice? Let's pray. Father, I think for for many of us... myself included, we remember that we're saved, but we forget that there's an ongoing power that is new in our lives and giving us a different way of thinking. That we're not alone, that, that we're not left to kind of figure it out and, and hope we, we get to the end of our lives somehow still put together. But rather, Father, you have sent not only Jesus to be our Savior and to redeem us, but you have sent his Spirit into our lives, and he indwells every disciple of Jesus. And it creates within us a new way of thinking. And Lord, there's a learning curve for us. We, we've got to, we still have to deal with the old. And, and at times we, we get into that way of thinking uh, where we, we forget you. But Father, I pray more and more every day that the Spirit of God will control the hearts and the minds of every believer at Green Tree Community Church. Not so that we can boast that we're some special people, but rather that we would be more in tune with you and that we would see the world through your eyes and we would be even more gracious gracious and more compassionate and more, uh, more giving and loving, that we would represent Jesus in, in our generation and in our day. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming and indwelling us and help us to live in this new way of thinking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.